Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. When you grow up with a set of beliefs, how much can you change? And how long does that take? Dennis Lehane, you might know him from his books like Mystic River and Gone Baby Gone. He takes a look at that question in his new book. It's set in the 70s in the middle of these violent protests around racial segregation in Boston. When Dennis was a kid, he actually saw these protests with his own eyes. In his words, he was way too young to see it. Dennis will tell you about that. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So let's go back for a moment to a pretty volatile time and place in the United States. Tonight, a city divided, white versus black in Boston. Judge Garrity ruled that Boston must adopt a busing system, sending children from one area to another to achieve racial balance in the schools. News Magazine sent film crews to Boston to record five historic days in a confrontation that the whole United States is watching, a confrontation in the courts and in the streets. That was Lloyd Robertson in 1974 during his CBC years on the TV show News Magazine. Lloyd was talking about busing in Boston, Massachusetts. What happened was a court ruling ordered kids from mostly white schools to be bused into mostly black schools and vice versa. The city was trying to desegregate education. This did not go well, to say the least. There were violent protests and outbursts of racism. And this is all the backdrop to Dennis Lehane's new novel called Small Mercies. It follows a single mom who's searching for her missing daughter in the middle of those riots. As I mentioned, Dennis is an award-winning and best-selling author. He's also the creative force behind TV shows, including Blackbird, he wrote for The Wire, and he's from Boston. So the times, the tensions that we're talking about have a strong personal connection for him. Tom Power spoke to Dennis Lehane from his home in L.A. How are you, Dennis? Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks. Can you tell us the story that sort of is, um, and it's sort of imprinted in your memory. I mean, Small Mercies is set in Mm -hmm. Boston in the summer of 74. And uh, you tell the story about just being nine years old and driving with your dad and your dad taking a wrong turn. Can you you tell me that story? Yeah, my dad, uh, we crossed over the Broadway Bridge. Normally we would take a right uh, when you cross the bridge from downtown and we would have taken a right to go to Dorchester. And for whatever reason, I, it's been lost to memory. He he went straight and it could be because maybe uh, maybe the, the Dorchester Street was blocked off. I don't know. Um, but we ended up uh, kind of drifting down Broadway in South Boston during a huge protest. Um, against uh, busing and desegregation. And the thing that I've never forgotten besides just the, just the terror of it all was, you know, we were just kind of being buffeted along and there were just people screaming on either side of us was they hung a bunch of effigies of sort of the, the, the main architects of, of busing and they hung them from poles and they lit them on fire. And I remember how just friggin' medieval it was. And, and terrifying. 
And um, and then, you know, what they were chanting, you know, there were plenty of people who were chanting legitimate things like, you know, hell no, we won't go, et cetera. But there were plenty of people who were chanting some really ugly racist stuff, too. So that just shook me to my core, I think, and um, and stayed with me and haunted me for the really for the rest of my life. Why? Why did that? Why did that stay with you so strongly? Because you're seeing mob rage. And and I don't think that's something that most people will encounter in their lifetime. And so it, when you're nine and you're and I can still see the flames reflecting off my father's uh, windshield is they like kind of move down it like like ice cream, you know, or something melting. And, it you know, you, you're you're seeing the ugly side of humanity in those moments. And if you're nine, it makes an impression. Was there some reason that, I mean, after this event that um, sort of sticks with you from the, from the early days of your, you know, your childhood and you, and you see this awful, this awful mob rule and they're protesting desegregation and they're, you know, there's a chance of these, you know, sort of awful racist things. Is there, is there a reason that now at this time in your career, like you decided to visit that memory? Well, I think I've been writing about race since my first book and it, and it usually find some way into almost everything I've written. But with this, I think, you know, we're seeing a, a really ugly moment in history in the United States and in other parts of the world where um, the quiet part is being said out loud again. And there's a big white lash against the advances that African-Americans and, you know, people of color have made over the last 50 years. So um, I think there it, it felt it felt at the time that I started this book, I had a nine year old. And a lot of what happens when you're a parent is you you process your own childhood through your kids. Mm. And and that happened. I was just like, wow, what if she was witness to this? Yeah. What if she saw this just incredible um you know, I mean, I saw KKK spray painted on a wall when I was a kid. Yeah. This is Boston. This isn't Mississippi. Yeah. This is Boston. Yeah. And and, and, and you almost don't realize how young you were. You know what I mean? Like, no. you look at a nine-year-old now and you go like, I was that young when I saw that? That's the big, I will say there's two things that happen as a parent. And when you have kids, it, it, it breaks both ways. You will go through an encounter with your child where you will understand and forgive your parents for something. Yeah. You know what I mean? You'll be like, oh, now I understand what, you know, uh, like, you know, when my dad was under unbelievable economic stress and he would snap or fly off the handle. I'd be like, oh, now I get it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I totally get it now. Um, and with the other flip side is you, you have a moment where you go, oh, no, they don't get a pass. My, you know, there was, you know, whether it's your parents or whether it's other adults, whatever it is, you go, oh, no, they don't get a pass because I was that young when that was done to me. And and I think what I what I realized writing this book was there was at the center of me for a very long time, a kind of a, a very hidden rage that only those closest to me could see. And and I never understood where it came from because I was not an abused child. I was well-loved and well-protected by my parents. Um, I have never been assaulted. You know, none of the things that would trigger rage in somebody were in me. 
But then I finally realized during the writing of this book, oh, I was way too young to have seen that. Yeah. I was way too young to have been exposed to that. And, and I knew it was wrong. And yet I grew up in a, in a, in a tribe in which there were a lot of excuses made for it, even by the people who weren't racist. Yeah. There was a, there was a lot of, oh, well, you know, they're just upset about having to go to a different school. Oh, they're just upset about, you know, that, that kind of thing. Oh, there would be what about us? You know, there would be like, you know, you'd say they're throwing rocks at school buses. And people would say, yeah, but, uh, you know, in Roxbury High, a white girl got beat up just for being white. Yeah. And so be what about isms? And it's like, good Lord, you're making you. Nobody is saying we've now gone too far. You know, I always think about that great line at which would be laughed at now in, you know, that ended, you know, uh, Senator McCarthy's career at long last. Have you no decency? Yeah. And and I feel like. With the people who were throwing rocks, it's at long last having no decency. The thing you were saying there about about your your kid is is interesting to me because, you know, so far we've talked about this sort of one moment when you were young that sort of had this impact on you and is sort of the backdrop to the to the book. But as I mentioned, you know, uh, Mary Pat, the 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 protagonist, you know, in in the book, I mean, she's she's trying to find her daughter. She's, she's, she's trying, she's going against the, you know, the, the systems that are all around her in her community. My understanding is she was probably inspired by people you actually knew. Tell, tell me a little bit about, about her. Well, she's, she was inspired very much by women I knew growing up. Uh, Project moms is the easiest way I would call it. You know, these were women who, who were um, as tough as any man. Uh, They were usually raising their kids on their own. They were living in grinding poverty. They were tough women who raised tough kids. And and some of them were capable of going toe-to-toe with a man in a fight. They might not win, but they would make the man very much regret that he went head-to-head with them. And and I think that type of woman fascinated me because I never I've never seen her any other place, and I've never seen her represented in literature. And so um then as I got older, I began to find a real empathy for these women, a sadness that they were very lonely women. And, and they were and they were sort of broken on the wheel of poverty. And they were tough because there was no other way to be. Not because, you know, that was inherent to their character. It was because that's how they grew up. And, and so Mary Pat is that. And she is, Mary Pat has two parallel journeys. And one of them is physical and the other one is emotional. And the physical journey she takes is very heroic. It's under any circumstances, she is going to find out what happened to her daughter. And if it was bad, bring those responsible to justice, her type of justice. And she will not stop. And she will not be talked out of it. And she will not be frightened. And and that is a heroic journey. Her emotional journey is a journey to understand that so much of what damaged her daughter and damaged her son and damaged so many people in the community is her own hatred and her own racism, which she's in denial about at the beginning of the book. I thought that was such an interesting point you make there because like I hadn't read something that talked so much about like how racism and intolerance can hurt a community that it's not just a horrible way to live your life. It's not just a horrible way to inflict, you know, compassionately on on the people around you. It'll hurt your 
community. I mean, this is obviously something you saw in, in Boston. Yeah. I mean, once you sell your kid racism, right, you've handicapped them right off the bat. You've cut them off at the knees and and you've limited how much they can be exposed to the wider world. Because if all you're going to do is spend your time around white people and all you're going to do is have conversations with white people and you're never going to have any trust whatsoever for somebody who isn't from your tribe. Well, in a global world, that's not going to be good for you. And I think this is most embodied in the book by by actually Mary Pat's sister, Peg, and her and her husband, yeah. who never leave the neighborhood. And I knew people like that who never left the neighborhood. I knew a guy who was 30 years old. And the first time he left the neighborhood was to go on a honeymoon in Pennsylvania. That's. This crazy. Not not leaving Boston, leaving the neighborhood. Leaving the neighborhood. And and that kind of tribalism is it was perfectly you could live your life that way in the 1920s. Hell, you could live it up clearly with the point of, of of the explosion of the riots in Boston in 1974, which you could live that way up until the 70s. But after that, it was all over. And that's, you know, uh, that's a good thing. I thought the, the book, you, you did a great job in, in the book of, of making me root for Mary Pat. And what I, mm-hmm. what, I mean, what I mean by that is that, you know, this is someone who, as you mentioned, like goes on this emotional journey about learning like the, you know, the, the and we can talk about how like, I, I want to talk to you in a second about how this book is not like moralistic or it's not, as you put it in a great interview I read with you, I like eat your vegetables fiction. And I, I will, I'll get to that in a second. But I, I thought you did a great job at like showing that this person is, has flaws or is, or is born into a flawed world, but can learn. She can learn, but only so much. That was a big thing. That was a big uh, debate with me and my editor. Really? During, yeah. Was how far can she go? And and I would say, no, you can't get this woman in the course of three weeks after a lifetime of a certain racial perspective to a kumbaya moment. It's not going to happen. She's going to get as close as she can possibly get. And I think that moment happens. The moment that... You know, the big moment is she's in a she's in a telephone booth and she's talking to Bobby Coyne and she unloads on the price of racism and and how it's something that they sell to you and then you in turn sell it to your children. And I think the most heartbreaking line, and I could say heartbreaking because it surprised me, is because she says they know, they always know when you're trying to sell racism to a kid, they always know it's false, but you wear them down. You said it was surprising to you? Yeah, it was surprising to me when that line popped out of her. You know, that that was the true horror of it. The horror of it is you have to work at it a little bit. You know what I mean? To turn a kid a kid racist, you have to work at it a little bit. Yeah. It, it's not just as simple as you say the words enough times and they become racist. Their first reaction, a four-year-old kid's first reaction is going to be, what? what? That makes no sense. By six, though, if you've been working hard enough, they'll be racist. And that's what Mary Pat realizes when she started with her kids, you know, probably, you know, they, they push back. But she kept pushing 
because she had been pushed. Talk, talk to me a little bit about that line I, I read from you, that you don't want to write eat your vegetables fiction. Because it's very clear. I mean, we're having big conversations about, about race and about racism and what, what racism can do both to the community affected by it or both communities affected by it. But that seems to be an important distinction that like you don't want to write sort of – but I, I love what you said there. This, this woman can only get so far. There's not going to be a moment where everyone's going to hold hands. That feels meaningful to me. Yeah, yeah. No, there's. I mean, there's even a moment where she she attempts an apology to um, some African American people, and it blows up. It it fails horribly because why should it be on your timetable that your epiphany should be accepted by them? You know. So uh, I, I, you know, Cormac McCarthy recently died, and he had a he had a great phrase that I, I just love. He said he believes in fiction, immortal events. And I believe in fiction and mortal events. Just for me personally, I personally am not capable of writing, you know, like Henry James, for example. You know, spend an entire novel writing about a, a, a crack in a bowl. That's not that's not my gift. <laughs> um, and that's not to say that there's not a place yeah, for that yeah, and yeah. a great place yeah, for that, yeah, but yeah. it's not me. So I need to write books that have a real propulsive engine you know a sense of extremis i write about people in extremis and and that's that's just for better or worse you know that's what i do so when i set out to write this book you know i wasn't setting out to write anthony lucas's common ground which is the magisterial brilliant non-fiction account of busting in boston i was i was saying i'm going to take what i always do i'm going to take a pulp story and I'm going to mix it in a blender with lots of sort of high end literary fiction influences. And and I'm going to and then I'm going to tap into my own social outrage and I'm going to see what happens. That's kind of my method for writing a book. Let me let me reintroduce you here. My guest is the best selling author and screenwriter, Dennis Lehane. His latest novel, Small Mercies, is out now. Was that clear from the beginning? Like when you I know you, you were writing you were writing short stories when you were like eight or nine or something like that, weren't you? Yeah, that's when I started. And then uh, and then when I went off to college, I thought I was going to be a short story writer. And right. so I think for about five years, I I did dabble in much more esoteric literary. I wouldn't say I went full postmodern, but certainly esoteric literary fiction. Who were you inspired by? Like, who were you liking? Um, with my my biggest one was Raymond Carver. Yeah. Um, Andre Debuse, The Elder. Uh, the short story writer was a huge influence on me. Chekhov, Alice Munro. Um, you know, I mean, those those were the people I was trying to emulate the most. But I had also been heavily influenced by that point by Elmore Leonard. Um, and so, you know, I had these very strong pulp influences. And then I had these very strong high end, you know, I was um, a huge fanatic about Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know, I mean, that, that, so there was a, there was a lot in the stew, if you will. Uh, Tony Morrison was a big deal. Cormac McCarthy. Um, then I wrote a novel for fun one summer and, <laughs> and it, and it, and it just flowed out of me. And I realized it's almost one of the last steps on a writer's journey is what type of writer I really was. I was a, I was a novelist who had thought he was a short story writer. I was like, huh, that novel came out rather quick. 
And because it was pop fiction, because it was a detective novel, you know, that wasn't necessarily going to fly with my avant-garde esoteric world of academia that I was in. But then I just started to say, you know, screw it. I really love doing this. And I feel like it's, I can, I can bring something different to the table. And, and I carved out this identity for myself over the course of the rest of my career, which was, you know, uh, I'm the bastard children, a, a child of pulp and literary sensibilities. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then there's not too many other people doing it. So that's kind of fun. I mean, that's how you be, that's how you became, you know, sort of well-known in the literary world. I mean, that sort of trans transitioned itself into the kind of films that were made from your work, which were like these these beautiful, like compelling, pulpy crime dramas, which also seem so like so so artful and so cinematic in their way too. Like I'm starting to see that that showing up in the films as well. I, I wanted to get the story off of you. I heard one time about um, Mystic River. So for people who don't know. Um, you, you, that Mr. Rivers, your your book. The story I heard about you is that like Clint Eastwood really had to work on you. Like you really didn't want this thing ad adapted. Yeah, I didn't, and um, I just felt like this this <laughs> it didn't make any sense to be a movie. Hey, take it easy. That's the father. Hey, take my it daughter easy. Is my daughter in there? I just felt like the movie itself, that the plot itself is so basic that with Mr. Griver, I felt like, well, the plot's the plot. But I mean, you know, what makes this story is the internal lives of the characters. How are you going to get that on the screen? Mm -hmm. What makes this story is that it's a tragedy. It was written as a classical tragedy. And if you don't understand that, you're going to screw it up. So what Clint finally said to me was, I want you to understand I'm not going to change your ending. I mean, I'm going to have to throw out a bunch of stuff, but I am going to keep the architecture and the scaffolding of this story intact, no matter what happens. That's how he sold me. And I was like, all right, I'm in. You're, I'm in, if that's what you're saying. You're a braver man than me for just saying no to Clint Eastwood. It wasn't, it, I wasn't like, no, Clint. But I was like, <laughs> I really, you know, I was like, I just don't really see this. And I, I really need to think about it. And he was like, okay, fine. You know, I found out from Sean Penn later, he did the exact same thing with Sean Penn. You know, it's it's the Dale Carnegie school. You just never quite accept the word no. Right. You know, so he would just keep coming back to me and he'd be like, so if you did allow it to be adapted, it only took him about a week to wear me down. But he, you know, um, <laughs> So, and then it was, you know, it was absolutely wonderful. I loved working with Clint. It's very basic. It's very, um, he's a rarity in Hollywood for sure. And I've modeled my production company and my way of doing business on a set after him. First name basis. Clint. That was uh, best-selling author and screenwriter Dennis Lehane. After Mystic River, Dennis had a number of his books adapted for film, movies like Gone Baby Gone, Live by Night, and Shutter Island. He's also written for film and TV on projects like The Drop and Apple TV's Blackbird. Coming up, Dennis talks about how not having an instant hit isn't such a bad thing in film. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. Q is back in a bit. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. The Wire's vision of the world was even more scabrous than mine. God, that was a dark (laughs) vision of the world. Oh, was it ever. I'm Talia Schlanger. You are in the middle of Tom Power's conversation with Dennis Lehane here on Q. Dennis wrote for The Wire. He also created the TV show Blackbird. His latest book, Small Mercies, is based around the Boston busing protests of 1974. And of course, a bunch of his previous novels have been adopted for the screen by directors including Clint Eastwood, Martin Scorsese, and Ben Affleck. Here's more of Tom Power's conversation with Dennis Lehane. So I've, I've had all these kind of conversations. The one that sticks in my mind is Patrick DeWitt, who, who wrote The Sisters Brothers. And I said, how did you feel about having your work adapted? And he said, the scariest thing about it is that it's, it's, it's a lot of people's first impression of your work. Most people are going to watch the film before they read your book. So you're trusting someone else with the first impression of your work. I yeah I I'm sorry maybe because I've been lucky and I've had good adaptations. I mean yeah you're gone baby gone and shut around. Yeah, it's been pretty but, good you know. But, you know I had Live by Night and Live by Night was not successful and but the way I look at that was it Ben put the exact same amount of effort into that as he put into Gone Baby Gone and there you know the reasons that something is or isn't successful is is a real crapshoot you know and it's um. All I care about is, was the intention honorable? And the intention was honorable. So so people didn't like Live By Night the way they liked the other movies? That's okay. That's all right. If it had defined my career, I just, I can't imagine, like the Sisters Brothers is a perfect example. I read the Sisters Brothers when it came out. I feel like the reputation of the book is bigger than the reputation of the movie. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And I just don't feel like, with all due respect to this author, who I don't know, I don't feel like it dinged him at all because it was, again, a respectful movie by a respectable director. I mean, that director is incredible. And, you know, not too many people saw it. So, like, I, you know, I don't know. And you never know what's going to happen with the drop. We always looked at the drop as as a perfect example of we we made the drop. We knew the drop was good. We loved the drop. Everybody involved in it. You need to see this, more. No, I don't. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to see Europe. I don't need to see Dottie. And I don't need to see what's in that bag. And when it came out and it kind of tanked, we were like, well, so America didn't agree with us. Mm. It's still really good. And then just last year, Everybody starts blowing up my emails and uh, my texts with, guess what the number one movie on Hulu is right now? And it was The Drop. Seven years later. What does that tell you? I don't know, but it's cool. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) It tells me it found an audience. It tells me that there's something to be said for just doing good work. Yeah. And, And let the audience catch up to you. Nobody saw Gone Baby Gone when it came out. It was because... They had to put something on TNT or TBS besides Shawshank. Right. And 
And so they just, you know, every now and then it was like, well, we can't tell Shawshank again. So they threw on Gone Baby Gone. And that's how it was discovered. Wow. You never, it's like Tom Hanks said that about, he said to me, he said, if a movie doesn't do well right away, that doesn't, that doesn't really mean a hell of a lot. It does. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. And, and it, that's hard to say when it happens. It's like a book. It's hard to say when a book, you know, a book doesn't, you know, do as big as you thought it was going to do. What about TV? Like, because TV, you get a couple of shots at it. The first episode doesn't do well. You get another episode. But if they don't catch on by the fifth one, you're trying to, you know, like you've done a lot of TV work, too. Is it the same thing there? No, it's a little different because with TV, my experience. Well, no, look, my experience with The Wire was very much the sense that nobody watched us when we were on. Absolutely nobody. Anybody who claims they did is lying. If you walk through the garden, you better watch your back. And, you know, we saw the numbers. And it was only at the end of the fifth season that the show became The Wire in all caps. And then it just kept building and building and building and building for years after that. So I've been actually part of a lot of things that have had a slow burn and a slow build, you know, and plenty of projects that didn't, you know, didn't connect initially i didn't know that about the wire so i was like i was young when the wire came out i didn't watch you know like yeah i only know it as the most respected television show of all time i didn't know that we were told at the end of the third season we were hemorrhaging a hundred thousand viewers a year we were told if you don't get either just rapturous critical praise for your fourth season or major ratings you're off the air oh wow and we got the praise we get the we didn't get the ratings, but we got the price, and so they allowed us to do one more year. Um, so you know, no, we were not. But and that the the beauty of that was that my agent would call me and she would say, "Well, now you, you we can get I can get you on other TV shows." And I'd be like, "Why do I want to be on another TV show? I'm on the wire." You know what I mean? <laughs> She's my friend. This show's great, you know. And she'd be like, "You're the lowest paid writer in TV," and I'd be like, "I know, and I don't care. I'm apprenticing. I'm learning how to do this." And nobody is bothering us. Like HBO would give us a note or two, but they just didn't really care. They had other things to be dealing with. And so we were kind of left alone. The inmates ran the asylum on that show. And and it was wonderful. But, but isn't it kind of like what you told me earlier? Like if I think about The Wire, isn't it, isn't it sort of like if you describe your, your, your fiction as like pulpiness and literary fiction coming together, isn't The Wire kind of like – law and order and highbrow film coming together? Like, isn't it sort of a distillation of you as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, there was a reason I fit well on that show. <laughs> you know, no question. Um, but The Wire's vision of the world was even more scabrous than mine. I mean, it was, God, that was a dark <laughs> vision of the world. Um so, but I loved, absolutely loved working for that show. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because and maybe this is a good way to close things out. Like I read this quote from you one time where you say that like the wires vision of the world was even darker than anything I've ever, I could have ever put in one of my books. I read this quote that was something like, you know, despite all the F-bombs in, in, in my books and despite all the darkness and all that, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. The biggest yeah. thing in all of my stories is hope. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, I think it's, it's very clear in um, small mercies, you know, Bobby Coyne represents hope, you know, so do, so does Ken Fenn. So, so does uh, Calliope. They all represent something that could maybe be good in the next generation. 
And I, not to go back to McCarthy again, I'm not a McCarthy fanatic. I just think, well, I am, but uh, his, his, he's very quotable in certain ways. He always said that the light that has to push up, no matter how small, against the, the darkest of dark is that much more hopeful because it had so much more to go through. And, and so that little pinpoint of light that comes up is, is a beacon in some ways. And I, I feel like in every single one of my books, at the end, it's not life sucks, it's life's hard. Mm. And, and you gotta fight for love and you gotta fight for what's good. You really, you really do see that in, in, in the book, Small Mercies. Dennis, always nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for making the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. That was Tom Power speaking with best-selling author and screenwriter Dennis Lehane. Dennis's latest novel, Small Mercies, is out now. That's it for this episode of Q Today, but you can check out our other episode with author Lindsay Wong, who grew up with a concept called the woo That's what her family used to refer to any hint of mental illness or depression or anxiety. They attributed it to ghosts or the woo-woo. Lindsay will tell you all about that over on the other episode. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.